please stand for the reading of God's word from Nehemiah 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There are also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you, even so your brothers, that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our Lord, to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his, this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes a king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration, ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work of this, on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, 
because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. This is word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Sister G, and welcome again and good morning. I'm Travis, I'm the pastor here. It's good to be with you. I feel like this happens to me every week that I prepare a sermon and then I hear the passage again on Sunday morning. I'm like, ah, so many things. So many things that I'd love to talk about with with y'all. But we have limited time and attention, so we're going to stick with the script. Um, But we are continuing in our series in the book of Nehemiah that we've been calling A Time to Rebuild. Uh, It's a book that's about the efforts to rebuild the ruined city of Jerusalem, which had been destroyed some 140 years before our story takes place. Actually, as part of God sending his own people out of the very land that he had called them to in the first place as something called exile, a tragic consequence for God's people walking so far away from him and the means that he would use to bring them back. So it's been some 140 years since the city of Jerusalem and the whole country of Israel has just been leveled. The city in particular has been destroyed, its gates have been burned, its walls have been broken down. And in the ancient world, a city without walls was completely vulnerable. There was no predictability, there was no stability, anything could happen at any time. So you have 140 years of no predictability and no stability. It's certainly a time to rebuild for God's people. And for us, likewise, we've been saying after several years now of pandemic, of of global upheaval, of economic rising and falling, and so many things, global problems with our environment, it is also for us a time to rebuild as people. And also, more than that, a time for us as a church after two years of transition from our past to our future, it's a time to rebuild, to start anew. And so my hope is that through this series, as we continue in it, we will get to focus on ways that we, as Christians and as the church, as CTK here, can rebuild to be, again, a place of refuge, as the people of God have always meant to be in the world around them, a place of refuge. Uh, Last week, we looked at the first great challenge that the people met with in rebuilding, and that was the angry, threatening opposition to the work of Sambalat and some others. We saw how God actually, in the midst of facing anger and frustration, invites us to take our anger back to him, not to stuff it and to stifle it, not to vent it on other people in unhealthy ways, but to take our anger back to him and to see how he actually calls us Uh, very counterculturally, to still be angry and frustrated and yet hold the doors of our hearts open to those with which we are angry, to hope that maybe someday there might be reconciliation. It was God turning his people towards a new normal. And yet even in the midst of, I'm sorry, Nehemiah starting to turn the people of God to work together to find a new normal, external problems were not the only problems in the community. This week we start to see the first internal problem that the people face in rebuilding. That's large-scale food shortages through famine, the text tells us, and some crises that are connected with that come out of that famine that we're going to talk about. But what all that is going to reveal, that crisis, the famine, all those things, is the wider scope 
of what we are called to rebuild. That there is actually much more than we may notice ourselves, that we may be thinking about, that we want to do, than God is actually calling us to rebuild. And we're going to see how we actually receive some guidance and some help for that call to respond to those things. Again, there's so much uh, I would love to get to in the text this morning, but we're going to focus on three things. First, the problem facing the people in verses 1 through 5. Uh, second, the response of Nehemiah to that problem in verses 6 through 11. And finally, the result in verses 12 through 19. So the problem, the response, and the result. Uh, but before we do that, would you bow your heads and would you pray with me as we ask God to fill up his word in our hearts this morning? Father, we come holding open a book where you have spoken that recalls a time when you acted, that makes promises about how you will act, that gives us hope about how you continue to act. God, would you bring our hearts before you this morning with anticipation that you will act, with assurance that you have acted and are acting for us, that even now you hear our cries, that even if we feel ourselves perhaps to be so little and small that all we can do is reach up to you like a parent and ask you to hold our hands, that you, by your word and by your spirit, would take our hand and walk with us. So we pray that you would do that this morning, that you would take us by the hand and that you would walk with us, that we might know you, that you might hear our cries, and that we might be changed to be a people who hear cries as well. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, feel free to have them open. If you don't, there should be a hardback one in the pew in front of you. We're going to be moving through the text a little bit together this morning. Or if you're a parent dropping off your kid, we're going to be going back through these things so you haven't missed out on too much. Uh, but let's start in at the problem itself, trying to understand what's really going on here. Well, really, the people were in pain and distress. Uh, verse 1 says, there was a great outcry... And actually that word, outcry, is the same exact word that God uses way back in Exodus chapter 3 to say, I heard the cries of my people under oppression and slavery and genocide. It's that same word which suggests to us that same level of crisis, that same level of distress. It evokes a sense of real pain and suffering going on, of urgency, uh, of a, a sort of something has to be done about this kind of feeling. It's not just a, oh, well, some people are having a hard time right now, or I'm going through a tough season. This is an outcry from oppression moment. This is an outcry from slavery and bondage and fear. It's that kind of desperate crying out to God for help. And verses 2 to 5 reveal the essence, what's behind that distress, what's behind that pain and outcry by highlighting a few groups that were suffering at this time. It doesn't seem like we could say exhaustively this is what everyone was going through, but these are representative of what was happening at the time. Uh, we see three groups highlighted. First in verse 2, it seems to talk about families who have no land while they're facing this famine and this crisis. They, they have nothing that they could, they could loan out to someone else as far as property goes. So if they are facing starvation and they need to eat, 
They are people who made a living not by having lands and estates, but by working with their hands, right? By doing vocational work. And so the only way for them to recover from that would be to have an opportunity to do more work. But without that opportunity, they are facing empty pockets and starvation. And they are having to consider borrowing money from others, either on the guarantee that if they can't repay it, their children might have possibly to go into a debt slavery program, or they might already have to go to that point of selling their children into temporary debt slavery so that they could survive, so that they could get more work and buy them back. There, uh, excuse me, there wasn't a broad welfare program in that time. If parents weren't there to provide for children, there was not a fantastic system to provide for children. Parents in this moment are facing the awful choice of potentially having your children go to someone else as a form of debt slavery until you can buy them back, or your family dying. This is a terrible situation. This is not a light moment. This is a painful crisis. But it's not just people in that position. Verse 3 also talks about people who had land and resources. Uh, they seemed, this group, to have borrowed money against their land to survive. They've, they've taken out a second mortgage, maybe, on the value of their home in order just to put food on the table. But they are recognizing now that they're not going to be able to repay that either. That the way things are going, they're not going to have the resources that they need. So with no other resources, I'm sorry, I'm going to, this keeps falling off of my face. We're just going to go with this guy. Uh, with no other resources, they're also seeming to be, as verse 5 suggests, facing the prospect of sell selling their children into debt slavery for a time as well, that they might not go hungry. Verse 4 also talks about landowners who, who couldn't afford not just to put food on the table, but to pay the tax from the Persian Empire. When we talked about how Jerusalem had been conquered some 140 years before, they don't run their own country. Persia runs their country, and they tax them. And they can't afford to pay the taxes that are due on the land that they own. And so, similarly, verse 5 explains, they are also facing the prospect of selling their children just to pay taxes. They borrowed against everything else they could borrow. They had mortgaged their houses, their fields. They had no other resources. This was the desperate moment they are facing. These are groups of people with no good options left. And sometimes that's what suffering creates in our world. Situations where you have no good choices, you have no options left that are good, and you become, like these people, a people crying out in desperation for help. Unable to focus on anything else in your life, unable to focus on rebuilding the wall on this great project that they had been called into because their lives are being destroyed because they can't put food on their table, because they can't bring their children back into their own home. This is a genuine threat to their lives and to the work that God wants to do through them. And praise God, Nehemiah recognizes it as such. His ears are open, his heart is open to recognize that this is a threat that needs addressing, that needs to be responded to. But as we think about these people, Facing these crises and these threats, it's easy to feel like that was thousands of years ago. That doesn't happen now. We have welfare. We have social security. We have child protective services. We have so many other things. And then we can say, sure, yeah, 
But that doesn't mean that situations of outcry are gone. That no one struggles anymore, that no one suffers anymore. I want us to ask, what might these kinds of cries look like today? If it's not a one-to-one correlation, and in some places it certainly is in our world, but if that's not our reality here, what would these cries look like today in our time and place? Who are the people in our, our neighborhoods, our city, even that we work with, that we pass by in our country, in our world, who have no good options left? Do we hear their cries? Are we even listening? Are we so busy scrolling through things on our phones, going to the next show, the next event, onto the next project, onto the next advancement in my life that, that I never stop to listen to someone else's outcry? Do we just say it's their problem? That you got yourself into this. You didn't work hard enough. You're not trying hard enough. You've made poor choices in life. Are we listening? Do we even care? Does it even bother us at all? There are lots of examples we can think about right now. I'm just going to call out a couple of them. If we think about the Black Lives Matter movement, people calling out to be heard about what it's like to be black in America, about distress just because of the color of your skin, do we, if we are not black, hear them? Do we act like we care? Think of Asian American communities over the last year or two calling, about, calling out about rising violence and aggression towards people who are from an Asian American background or just an Asian descent background, asking to be heard, asking for something to be done, asking for people to speak out and to recognize that this is a problem that is happening and that is not going away by itself. Do we here, if we are not those folks, do we hear them? Women in society, in the church, in this church, those that have gone through something like a Me Too movement experience, those who value and know the importance of the change that needs to come in our culture related to things like that, asking to be heard, men, do we hear them? Do we make them feel heard? There's a difference, right? If you're in, especially if you are in a marriage, you know there is a difference between saying, yeah, yeah, I heard you, and your spouse feeling heard, right? Do people feel heard about the things that they are crying out about? If you are crying out, do you feel heard? Do you feel heard here? I want you to feel heard here. You need to feel heard here. We need to hear you if you are crying out. We must. Because this passage suggests to us that to rebuild the walls, to sort of rebuild our ministry, to reset the church and its focus, and to not rebuild the people who will be part of it, who will be impacted by it, is to miss the whole point of rebuilding. It's actually, as Nehemiah could say to the people of that time that were doing these things, that were lending in this way, it's actually wrong. 
It's not just a mistake. It's not just a missed opportunity. It's actually wrong. As we're about to see in Nehemiah's response in verses 6 through 11, I know I've got you all excited this morning, right? We're feeling good. So glad I came to church today. We're going to get there. Gospel hope is coming, but sometimes we've got to go through the darkness. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right, y'all are awake. The response that Nehemiah gives to these things in verses 6 through 11 shows that Nehemiah, again, as he was last week, is angry. Can we just stop for a second and talk about kind of the, the courage that it takes to say, I was really angry. We don't like to say that, right? It makes people uncomfortable. Anger makes people uncomfortable, particularly in Christian context. We kind of talked about this last week. But look at the transparency of Nehemiah, who's this great leader in this time, to say, I was angry. To just be honest about where he was, to share in that way. And he's really right to be angry because he recognizes that powerful people, himself included, as he says in verse 10, were not taking care of their own. They were actually causing or adding to the suffering of other people in the community. And it's not exactly clear if what Nehemiah is talking about here was strictly illegal under God's law code for his people. If the way that they were lending money was illegal or not illegal or walking some sort of fine line. But the result, legal or not, was that they were not taking care of their own people. the very people who were supposed to be benefiting from this project of rebuilding. People were suffering while they were gaining advantage, while they were earning interest, while they were getting an annual return. And that was not, is not, right. It is not true rebuilding to advantage ourselves at the expense of others. At a minimum, because, because God's law did and still encourages us to do, as one commentator, H.G. Williamson, points out, require us, as those who are God's people, to protect the basic rights of the poor. I want you to hear that. If you're not sure whether God cares about poor people, if God cares about you when you're struggling financially, God has set it down in his written word that we, the people of God, are absolutely to care and take care of the poor. It is not an if. It is not an if you are this kind of poor, if you are that kind of poor, if it happened to you this way. The basic rights of the poor, however you get there, are the concern of God. And these people were certainly not protecting the basic rights of the poor if they are having to face a choice between starvation and selling their children. They were letting people fall into greater suffering and distress and not seeing them rebuilt. But more pointedly, this is actually wrong, as Nehemiah points out in verse 8, because the whole point of rebuilding was to regather this scattered people of God and to make them whole again, to give them a home again where they could be the integral refuge people of God for the world around them. How can they do that if they themselves are dying on the vine? How can they be that refuge, that city on a hill, that light, if, yeah, the walls are rebuilt, but we are dying? 
This is contrary to the very purpose that they have come there to rebuild. They were meant to bring others back, to bring them to flourishing, to free them up, and to let them starve or sell each other into debt slavery to avoid starving was not that rebuilding. Nehemiah is making very clear, this is not the point. This is not why we're here. This is not what we came to do to say, I take care of myself and you take care of yourself. Sort of the individualism that we understand very greatly here in Western culture was also present at that time in some way in their culture, that I take care of me and you take care of you. God is saying through Nehemiah, that isn't going to cut it for the people of God. Yeah, you're responsible for you, but you are also called to care for and love your brother and sister, particularly the poor among you. It isn't enough to just stay at home base. That can't be rebuilding to just leave the community broken down. It misses the point, and we need to say the same for ourselves in our rebuilding as we think about what is it to rebuild my life after several years of a pandemic? when I have learned by force, really, of this virus to shrink my circle of focus to mostly around me? What does it look like to start widening my gaze again? To start lifting my eyes up? To advantage ourselves, to prioritize ourselves at the expense of others, to not hear the voices of others that need to be heard is, in this passage, to fail to truly rebuild. It's wrong. It's not just a missed opportunity for us. It is wrong. To leave the community broken down, to leave one another broken down when our stated purpose is to rebuild, that's wrong. That can't be rebuilding And that doesn't mean, and I don't want you to hear me saying, that we're going to be able to fix everything for everyone. Look look around, right? There are not that many of us. There are 7 billion or more people in the world. There are still a lot of people just in the greater Boston area. We are not going to be able to fix everything for everyone. But will we do what God calls us to do for his people? Will we have a heart and actions that say that we actually care about the basic rights of the poor? Will we have an action and a heart that says we care about women, that we care about people of color, that we care about those who are being abused and oppressed? Will we be that kind of people? Will we share the wholeness that God calls us into and hands to us, or will we hoard it? Will we be those people that are spiritually creating a bunker of canned goods and storing up for ourselves for a rainy day? Or are we going to be those people that open a pantry to the community? What are we going to be like? We are called to be that people that share. But what does that look like to start approaching, to have a heart and actions that move that way? Thankfully, Nehemiah shows us what it looks like, and he actually does what he's already done before. It actually helps us. It reinforces to see it done again. What does he do? He responds appropriately. We talked about that last week, and he returns them to the vision. Look at the text, starting in verse 7. He responds appropriately. Verse 7, what does he do? He gets alone with the problem again. 
He says, I let my heart take counsel within me. He doesn't just jump right on these people and light them up and say how stupid they're being. He stops and he takes a breath. And he waits before acting on the anger that he feels in his heart. But once he's paused, he actually addresses the issue. He doesn't just stew over this. He doesn't just write a sort of passive-aggressive social media post and show that he has a new picture on his profile, that he is for this issue. No, he actually steps in. It says he brought charges against the nobles and the officials. He confronts the people that are at the very heart of this problem, which is something that we are also called to do, not to run from conflict, but to do conflict well. As Christians, we are not called to be peacemakers at all costs. That is faking the peace and not making peace. We are called to do confrontation lovingly and well, but to actually do it. And Nehemiah does that first by returning everyone to that common vision. In verses 8 through 9, he reminds them how they have been working hard to get their brothers and sisters out of the slavery that they were sold into as part of exile to free them from that, and reminds them through that how they are a people who care about the flourishing of others. And I am here to remind you, likewise, if you are a Christian, you are by very virtue of your affirmation of faith, by the Christ spirit that lives in you, you are a person who cares about the flourishing of others. This text does not call you to be someone you are not. It calls you to be who you are, to live into the heritage that you have, the identity that you have. It calls you not to be someone you're not, but to be someone you are. And that's what Nehemiah does. Part of his confrontation is to call people back to being who they are, And in the midst of that, he owns his own mistakes. Verse 10, he owns that he's part of the problem. He says, I've been doing this. The guys that I'm running with are doing this. We have been lending money in this way that hurts and doesn't help. And in that, he is creating space for everyone to be a sinner. Not just to say some people make mistakes and others don't. Nehemiah steps in, says, I have a problem too. I've messed up. And he then offers a specific solution. He doesn't just leave it hanging as, yeah, we are all messed up. This is rough. We should just all feel guilty for a really, really long time. He offers a specific solution in verses 10 through 11, verse 10, to stop this kind of lending going forward, where we take people's livelihoods from them. We're not going to do that anymore. And step two, verse 11, he says, today... Today, now, this very day, give back everything that we have taken as payment or collateral. He is saying, effectively, to cancel all debts. Now, this wasn't crazy revolutionary in the time of Israel because it was already baked into the law of God that every 50 years, all debts would be canceled in the year of Jubilee. But it seems the year of Jubilee must have been too far off. So Nehemiah isn't saying, hey, Let's just wait it out. Let's let the system play. Let's let it do what it does. And we'll just sort of get by until it does. Nehemiah is saying, now, we need to do this now. We need to cancel debts now. He calls them to move beyond simple fairness to radical generosity. 
That's a Christian impulse, I want to tell you right now. The move beyond simple fairness, what's equitable, what's the market practice, to move, whatever that is, that's the starting point for the Christian life. That's not the terminal. The starting point for Christianity is fairness. The goal is radical generosity. To meet needs when we see needs, to lean into these things. This is not just an Old Testament idea. The book of James is all about this. James says, how can we look someone in the eye and say, be warm and well-fed and not help them at all and think that we have really helped? This is an idea that doesn't go away. This isn't sort of a, well, God used to act that way, but now we take care of ourselves, we're responsible for ourselves. Yes, and amen, and. And we lean in beyond simple fairness and equity to radical generosity. And so as we see those things, I want us to just bookmark this and even this chapter in this passage as a guide for how we start to respond to the outcries that we hear in our world and in our community, that we, we take a breath first before we just light people up, that we genuinely confront the issue and don't just sidestep it. We're not passive aggressive about it. We have the courage to talk to people about what's wrong. We draw ourselves and others back to the vision of God's flourishing, to call ourselves to be who we are. We own our part in the problem. We acknowledge that we are all equally broken. That manifests in different ways. Some of us are farther along in healing than others, but we are all equally broken. We all have something that we can own. And we offer specific solutions to address the problem. We move towards radical generosity. And I'm not expecting us to memorize that. There's no quiz at the end, okay? But to just start to be familiar with, to hold this out as a paradigm for how we respond in a healthy way to problems and needs in our time that look like this. To hear outcries in this way, to take them seriously. That's what we are called to through Nehemiah's actions in this text, to respond appropriately and return ourselves to God's vision and finally, in verses 12 through 19, we see what happens when you do that, right? When, when God moves in you doing that, we're going to focus primarily on verses 12 through 13, though we'll touch on the whole section here. The result of Nehemiah's healthy response is, is actually surprising on many levels. Uh, first, we don't expect, and I would say I don't expect, and you probably don't expect, wealthy, influential, powerful people to just let go of what they're owed. To say, sure, no problem, no more debts, canceled, done, no big deal. Like if you walked into any bank on Mass Avenue and said, hey, could you just cancel all my debts today? They would probably look at you like you're crazy and say, no, but can we interest you in a new loan? Right? Like that's, <laughs> that's probably what you're going to hear. Uh, so, but here in verse 12, what do they say? They say, we will restore these things that we have taken and we will require nothing from them. That's a miracle, right? Like that, that doesn't happen. That's not how the human heart works. A lot of times we only think about miracles as a grand sign from God in kind of an exodus liberation kind of way. This is a miracle too. People's hearts don't work this way. God moved in a miraculous way to make powerful, wealthy, influential people let go of what they were owed to let go of fairness and move beyond that to radical generosity. 
Jesus talks about this in Matthew 19. He encounters a man who is rich and powerful and influential. The rich young ruler, uh, the encounter goes, Jesus tells him to give up his wealth, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And at the end of that, he says, sell everything you have and come and follow me. Stop being a person of power and influence. Let go of what you're owed and come and follow me. And it says he goes away sad. No miracle happened that day. And after that, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. We could say it is a miracle that this happened in this text, that it is easier for, I don't know how many people were rich and powerful, let's say a thousand people, let's say a thousand camels go through a thousand eyes of a needle. That's what happens here. This is surprising, right? That This is a work of God in their time that the rich would turn away from their riches to rebuild the poor. And I just want to say for a second, what if we as a community had a reputation like that? So just put that vision for you in a second. What if CTK had a reputation as a radically generous community? What might that look like in our place to be so counterculture where it's not pay for what you get? but true generosity, not demeaning charity, but caring, seeing, valuing, dignity giving, life honoring generosity. But the second greater surprise, I think, is in verse 13, that after this happens, it says, and all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord. We would obviously expect those people who are on the verge of having to sell loved ones into debt slavery to be praising God for deliverance. That is no surprise. It is a surprise that the very people that said, okay, we will do this, we will cancel all debts, to be praising God for the opportunity to stop being so rich and powerful. That's surprising. That's not the praise chorus. You would expect them to begrudgingly say, okay, fine and to go away, right? To not be happy. But it says that the whole community, the whole assembly praised God. Why? Because they heard that they were not walking, as Nehemiah pointed out, in the fear of God, but they were walking then, if they're not walking in the fear of God, in a way that is wrong that was leading towards tearing down, not building up. They had learned that they had been, though they thought they weren't, they had been walking away from God. And listen, that is the exact reason that God sent his people into exile in the first place was because they were walking away from God. They get a wake-up call to say, hey, you're doing it again. Everything that fell apart was because we did this. We walked away from God. And if we're walking away from God, everything is going to fall apart again. But now they're given a chance to come back. And though it was an extremely costly change to make, they are glad to pay the price to be walking on the path that leads to God again. Would we feel that way? Would I? Would we feel glad for something that we thought 
was good and okay and fine to be told that is wrong and we have to do something drastic to change it, to be praising God, to say, God, thank you that I was on this path and I didn't see it, but you are taking me off the path. Right? The humility of that, to say, God, maybe I don't know the best way for me in all times. Maybe I don't know the best things for me to choose. Maybe I don't know the best way for me to live my life, but thank you that you are saving me from walking somewhere that I ultimately don't want to go. They're glad to pay a price that would lead them somewhere that they really would, even if they can't understand why now, that they really would, in the end, want to go. See, the result of Nehemiah's healthy confrontation of the people is that God hears the cries of his people, that he brings a miraculous end to suffering and distress, shockingly, not through a shiny miracle, not through bread raining down from the heaven again, but through a subtle miracle, through people paying a price to make things right. And let's just be clear, it was true then, it's true now, a debt has to be paid. A price has to be paid. The cost of famine, the cost of the family's needs for eating during the famine doesn't just disappear. The pain gets passed along to someone else. If the bank cancels your debt today, someone else is paying for that. The bank is paying for that. Someone else's investment is paying for that. It doesn't just go into dust, right? It has to go somewhere. The wealthy bear the pain for the poor. That's how things are made right. They bring their pain, their distress, their problem into their house. And in that, we see exactly what God did and continues to do for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus came in the flesh as flesh of our flesh, as the text says, as one of us to take on our debt, the one that we couldn't pay, the one that was crushing us, the debt of sin that only gave us bad choices to, to choose between unwinding ourselves or unwinding others, tearing ourselves down or tearing others. That's what sin does in our lives. And Jesus used his spiritual wealth to make things right for those who were spiritually bankrupt, canceling our debts in his own body as a payment on the cross and charging us nothing in return. Because like Nehemiah, he knew that the burden was too great for us. And he didn't wait to say, I'll figure out a time when they will actually be strong enough to do it on their own but knew for all time that this burden would always be too big to carry and that he was going to have to use his wealth for our poverty. And not just stopping at that one point as if all that he really cared about was to just kind of tweak things a little bit and then we go our separate ways and we say, thank you, that was really important debt relief. I'm gonna go my way now. But he, he brings us into relationship in the same way that Nehemiah retains relationship with the people who were struggling in these last verses. Jesus in the same way spreads a daily feast for us now to sustain us through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that feeds our souls on 
on a daily basis, that feeds us in the sacrament of communion on a weekly basis. In the same way that Nehemiah spread a table, but almost more so, and deeply more so, Jesus spreads the table through the Holy Spirit that we might not just be brought out of poverty and left alone, but brought out of poverty and brought home. See how he wants to bring you home. Do you see a God who loves you like that? Who doesn't turn a deaf ear to your cries, but who steps into the famine and the oppression for you, who brings the cost of it into his house, into his very body even, who lets it touch his life, take from his wealth, his time, his energy, who lets it take his life away so that you and I might find life again. Hmm. Do we know a God like that? Christians, are you settling for a lesser God? Non-Christians, are you settling, are you rejecting a lesser God? Are you settling for a lesser God that is going to keep making you pay, that doesn't care at all about your poverty and says you will continue to pay your way? Don't you want a God of generosity? Don't let your pride get in the way. Don't be the person that's out there spiritually selling your children, so to speak, just so that you can be proud enough to be the one who pays it back. Don't stay in that place between only terrible choices. God is holding out to you a banquet of a life without terrible choices. Isn't that what we want to tell our friends about if we're Christians? A life that is free from terrible choices, that is what we're stuck in, in sin. That's what I want you to know and to share and to be able to give away to others what Jesus has given to you. A life free from terrible choices, not settling for simple fairness, but being adopted into radical generosity. Isn't that a vision we could get behind? I want us to think about that as we rebuild, that this is the God that we have who would bring your pain into his house, would hear your cries that way, who would, who would charge you nothing to rebuild you. That's the God that we have in Jesus. And as I close here, I want to give you two practical things to do as we follow up on that, to resolve and to regain First, I want to ask us, can we resolve to hear where people are crying out? Not to close our ears, but to listen. To genuinely listen and try to understand, to, to try and say back to them what they say in a way that they can say, that is exactly what I meant. You're hearing me now. It might not be a problem that we can tackle as an individual, as a church, even as a country maybe, but, but how can we be a people who listen to cries and strive to respond, who want to see rebuilding, including everyone? Can we be resolved to be a listening people? who at a minimum take the cries of our people, of our friends, of our neighbors, to a God who can always do something about it? Can we pray at the very least in response to listening?
And if you need help getting started and in, in, in listening and thinking about some of the needs of our community, I want to encourage you to, to talk to various people here that are involved in ministries that are taking these things on, to talk to, to Morgan about international miss, missionaries who are trying to share the gospel in places where the gospel is not being shared, to talk to some of our, 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 our campus ministers, our RUF ministers, Nathan and Michael, I don't know if y'all are here this morning, uh, to talk to our diaconate about folks in our local community who need care, who are crying out. If you don't know, there are people here who know. And we would love to talk to you about those things, but can we resolve to be a listening people? Can we take a step this week towards being a listening person, towards trying to hear someone out? And secondly, I want to encourage us to regain some sensitivity. That I think I've lost, I'm sure that we've lost, some of our ability to just listen with a humility and a curiosity instead of a quick judgment that says, no, 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 I don't agree with that. You don't know what you're talking about. Or at least that's constantly under threat in our culture right now, that we've lost some sort of openness to hearing people's struggles and concerns without immediately jumping into categorizing it, defending it, keeping it at bay. That's what we're doing. We are good right now at keeping our arm locked out. Right? We are constantly in the Heisman position right now. We are keeping everyone at a stiff arm distance. Can we start to soften just a little bit and to sit in that, that unsafe place of saying, I'm not sure what to do with what I will hear from you. I may not know how to fix it. I may not know how to respond. I may not know how to own my part in it, but I'm gonna sit and listen. Because Jesus listens to us that way. Jesus listened to the poor, to the hurting, to the crying that way. He let their pain come into his house. He rebuilt them in that moment and invites us to be part of the same, to listening and rebuilding. And if we are to truly rebuild for all, then we need to pay attention to what, what rebuilding we need to do just to regain our sensitivity to even being open to hearing where someone else is crying out, to even acknowledge that yes, this is a problem, to not tell someone sort of metaphorically, wait for the year of Jubilee, but to say, I'm listening, what can we do now? Where have we lost that willingness, that humility to listen? Ask God to help you like he helped these people to do that miraculous work in your life that you become someone who listens and loves. Would you pray with me? I'm going to leave you just a moment here to respond in prayer to some of the things that we've talked about to, to thank God for hearing your cries or to ask him to hear your cries, to, to turn you into someone who cares about rebuilding others and confess maybe the ways that you've had deaf ears that you haven't wanted to hear. Let's pray. Father, hear these prayers by your mercy and your grace. Make us a people who genuinely do care because that's who we really are in you now. May who we are be true in what we do. In your name we pray, amen.